Uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 this morning. But I wanted to start here. Um, When I was a child, I had very severe sleep apnea. And what that meant is I struggled to breathe at night and I... um, my legs were restless. I slept, walked, slept, sleep, walked. That's a hard past tense. Sleep, walked a lot. And one of the side effects of having such tumultuous nighttime experiences is that I didn't dream much as a little kid. I think it's probably because I didn't hit that REM state of sleep uh, habitually enough to, to really dream. And so that was kind of my childhood up until about 10 or 11. I can't exactly remember. And then I had several surgeries that kind of opened up my airway and allowed me to breathe at night again. And as I had these good night's sleeps, I started to dream again. But my dreams, when they returned, were strange and infantile. I had two recurring dreams over and over And one of them is I was being chased around the base of a large tree by teddy bears in fatigues, commando fatigues, carrying machine guns, chasing me along the tree. And then the other one, I was in this big metal and concrete maze that had all of these locking gates, and I was being pursued through each and every gate by dinosaurs. Not like Jurassic Park dinosaurs, because it wasn't there yet. These are more like blown up plastic toy dinosaurs. But it was crazy. It was as if my brain that hadn't dreamt for so long just picked up where it had left off like five years before and giving me the same nightmares that I had had as a tiny tot. And to this day, teddy bears kind of creep me out. (laughs) And Daniel 2 is in this season of really weird dreams. And indeed, the rest of this book is going to be this kind of series of bizarre visions and odd dreams that the Lord is going to send to Daniel in order to communicate to him the future and the hope of God's people. And if you remember last week in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had this night vision of four monstrous beasts that kind of emerged from the roiling waters of the sea to wreak havoc on the earth. And we discovered that these creatures, they represent the the violent pagan empires that would rise up to dominate and oppress God's people in the coming generations. And that was namely the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and beyond. But we also witnessed in the dream God in the court of heaven, seated on his judgment seat, the creator God, the so-called ancient of days, he declares an end to the worst of these nightmarish creatures. And he strips the others of their power. He judges them. He renders his verdict. And then one we read like a son of man is presented before him. It's Jesus himself. He comes on the clouds and he's there before the heavenly judge. And he is crowned and he's given a kingdom. And it's a multilingual, it's a multi-ethnic, it's a multinational kingdom. And its dominion will be everlasting. It will never be defeated 
or destroyed. And the chapter ends with these words, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel's dream was beautiful. It was powerful. And he knew it was deeply significant. It haunted him. It inspired him to awe. God gives him this window on the future. He, he sees human history from heaven's perspective and he catches a glimpse of God's unfolding plan of, of cosmic rescue. It's truly a picture worth a thousand words, but I wonder if Daniel's response was the same that some of our men have been having as we've been wrestling with these texts these last several weeks in Bible study. I think the most common response that we've gotten on first read of one of these passages is the guys all go, that was clear as mud. And I wonder if Daniel's kind of doing the same sort of thing. He's, he's yearning for clarity, for deeper understanding. He's asking for wisdom, and, and God is going to faithfully respond by sending more and more dreams. But I'm not sure more is actually going to clear up Daniel's confusion. So we'll read and I'll let you decide for yourself. So again, if you have a Bible, Daniel chapter 8, we're going to start off in verse 1. And this is the so-called vision of the ram and the goat. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which it appeared to me at first. This one came after last week's vision. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was not in Babylon. I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. At the time that Daniel's receiving this vision, Babylon is still the dominant power in the ancient world. And he's still serving that kingdom. He's this forgotten advisor in the court of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the wild party boy who's confronted by the writing on the wall. If you uh, missed that story, go back and read Daniel chapter 5. It's a good one. But in the vision, Daniel's not in Babylon. He's transported far to the east to a place called Susa, which is weird and random. Susa at the time is this minor Elamite fortress on the outskirts of the Babylonian Empire. It's a city that was long dominated by other powers, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. Why would he be here? And I think he can tell that the location is significant, but he senses that he's missing part of the story. I had a similar experience a few years back. I was watching a Disney movie called Big Hero 6 with my kids. It's kind of a middling movie, but as you start that movie out, it's, you see this picture of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is kind of redone in a Japanese style. And as a, a kid who grew up in the Bay Area, it, it jumped out to me. And then as the movie goes on, it says, oh, this story is set in the futuristic city of San Francisco. And my little history nerd brain is going and going and going and going. And I'm thinking, what? 
And it doesn't comment on it, but in the world of that story, the United States lost World War II in the Pacific, and Imperial Japan is the dominant power on the West Coast. And it doesn't make any of comment about it, but it's like, I'm like, whoa, it could totally darken the movie for me. It changed my perspective on it. I, I found it unsettling, and I wonder if Daniel's having this similar experience. He's like, why am I here, and what is going to happen? What has happened? And he, he doesn't know it yet, but Susa is about to be overtaken by the Medes and the Persians, and they are going to turn it into the capital of their empire, and it's going to be the empire that destroys Babylon. And here he is, transported there in the vision. And verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and look, a ram standing on the banks of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the, the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, look, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram with the two horns, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. The seven-year-old boy inside of me is all in for Daniel's dream of a ram battling a goat. My son Elijah has this book series called Who Will Win? And they're all these kind of animal showdowns. Who will win rhino versus hippo? Who will win hyena versus honey badger? And it seems like Daniel has tuned into who will win ram versus goat. And now, well, the dream might on first glance strike you as nonsensical. And I told a buddy who's a pastor that we were preach I was preaching on this sermon, this, this passage this Sunday, and he said, you're crazy. I always skip that one. But... I trust that God has something for us here. It might strike you as just nonsense, but for those of you who know your ancient history, this is a symbolic but very faithful retelling of the great power conflict between the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And really, it's a fascinating period of history, something I loved studying in college. The, the battles are legendary. You have Marathon, which is that bloody battle of attrition on the coast of Greece. You've got Thermopylae, where the 
King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans hold a horde of Persian soldiers at the hot gates for three days, dying almost to a man. You have got the the great naval battle of Salamis there off the Athenian coast where a smaller force of Greek ships with these metal iron Ramming rods strapped to the front defeat the full might of the Persian navy. And then ultimately you've got Guagamela, which is where Alexander the Great, with his heavy phalanx of soldiers and his lightning fast cavalry, break the power of the Persian Empire there on the battlefield, ending their time at the top. And I love this stuff, but I'm a nerd. And I imagine most of you don't care kind of a whit about any of the ancient history. And I, you could argue that Daniel really shouldn't either. Because 90% of what I just talked about, he'll never live to see. And true, Daniel's realizing that God is expanding upon these past dreams. Last time we saw that misshapen bear. Now we've got a new picture of the same empire. It's the ram with the misshapen horns, with the mismatched horns. And that four-headed leopard creature from last week is now this goat with the big horn. And there's historical explanations for all of those little details But why send a vision of a future Daniel will never live to see? Hold on to that question and let's get a little bit more into the meat of our passage. We're going to be back with the Greek goat and his single horn is going to break and four are going to rise up in its place. The single horn was Alexander the Great who, if you don't know his story, he was a savant of war. He conquered the known world before his beard had even grown in. In 12 years, he took over all of the ancient Near East. But at the height of his power, at 33, he died suddenly after a night of wild binge drinking in Babylon. And in the wake of his death, his empire is going to be divided up to his four strongest generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. And from one corner of that kind of divided empire will rise a ruler who will persecute God's people in a manner that would not be seen again until the rise of Adolf Hitler. His name was Antiochus IV, and he but Scripture calls him the little horn. And this is what we read in verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of those four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land, the land of Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Clear as mud, right? Let me try to explain. So Antiochus IV was this descendant of the Greek general Seleucus. He's a later king in his line who, who gets to the throne by murdering his nephew, and he's this brutal and aggressive leader. He greatly expands his empire. He almost conquers Egypt. But to consolidate his control, he seeks to impose Greek cultural and religious practices on all of, his, all of the peoples under his domain, which includes the Jews. And he takes for them himself this title, which is called Epiphanes, which is, means God manifest, God in the flesh. And he walks into the temple of Jerusalem. He goes into the Holy of Holies and he constructs an altar to Zeus there. And he sacrifices a pig on that altar in the holiest place of Jewish religion, desecrating the temple and ending biblical worship, those twice daily sacrifices for over three years. And then he forbids anything that marks a Jew as a Jew. He, he forbids circumcision. He burns scriptures in the street. He punishes law-keeping. If you rest on the Sabbath, he punishes you. His single-minded goal is to, to stamp out Jewish religion. He says God's people can either live as pagans or they can die as Israelites. It's incredibly disorienting and disheartening. But then in this vision, God promises to save his people from this terrible villain and to, to reconcentrate, to make holy once again his house, his temple. God wants to alert his people ahead of time to what is coming. So what might be God's purpose for sending Daniel this vision of a future he'll never live to see? Well, I think God seeks to steady his people as they begin to walk through what lies ahead. God also wants to equip and, and forearm us as his people for the coming crises that we might face. I was doing a little thought experiment and how would I respond if the Lord sent a dream and said take heart Ryan your great-grandchildren will watch the full might of the Chinese Communist Pacific Empire fall to the Afro-Russian nuclear forces in the Battle of Puerto Rico I think I'd first roll over vomit shake and cry on the floor for a while and then try to process how we would get from here to there. And I don't think I'd ever arrive at true 
clarity on what exactly was coming. But I would eventually approach life from a a different perspective. I'd prepare my heart and my children for living in a nation in decline. I'd equip God to trust, I'd equip them to trust God and to cling to his truth, even in the face of, of setback and hardship and defeat. I'd have them hold fast to the, the promise that God is faithful, that he never forgets us, that his rescue is certain, that no one can snatch us from his hand, that God is sovereign, that he is guiding the course of history to his desired ends, that one day, wholly and completely, he will make all things new. Even if he won't live to see it, God is trying to shape his people's perspective so that they might train future generations to trust the Lord. But there's something else going on here in this passage as well. God's revealing to Daniel the spiritual dynamics behind all this earthly upheaval. He gets to see behind the curtain into what we would call the unseen realm And it reminds me of what Paul said in Ephesians. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's hard to explain, but it says there in verse 10 that Antiochus grew strong even to the host of heaven. Not only was his human empire rising, but some dark power behind his rule was growing in strength as well. And not only do we see battles on earth, but we see battles in heavenly places and we see casualties on both fronts. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. I don't fully understand how we're supposed to to comprehend that, but it's depicting spiritual warfare in which supernatural beings actually go down and meet their demise. Folks that are fighting for the Lord in heavenly places. And then in verse 11, we see that Antiochus, the little horn became great, even as great as the prince of the host. He sets himself up and declares himself to be God in the flesh, a rival and challenger to God's anointed, to the prince of God's host. The New Testament has a word for this. It's an antichrist. It's a rival Christ. It's a false Messiah, a counterfeit savior. And I I don't entirely know how we're supposed to process all this. But it's clear that in a conflict that has spiritual dimensions, we resist not by taking up sword or axe, but by falling to our knees in prayer. 
And we see in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Makes sense. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. It's not capital, the capital E end. It's an end, I believe, is how we're supposed to read that. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep. And with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up and said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, at the latter end of Antiochus's tyranny, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. He goes on to try to explain this to Daniel. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of, the Medi, Medi, kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, Antiochus, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Again, that clue of the the spiritual dimensions behind his rule. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and, and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I really appreciate Daniel's very human response there at the end. He's he's sick, he's overwhelmed, he can't get out of bed for a few days. It's, It's just too much. It's too much to comprehend, too much to process. There's too many emotions. And God instructs him to seal up this vision. Why? I think quite simply one reason is that it's not for now. There's no actionable intelligence here for for folks living in those generations that were alive at the time. They need to know this truth, but they need to preserve it for future generations. But there's something else here as well. Sealing is not just like us licking an envelope and closing it. In the ancient world, if you were in a far-flung province and the the king sends you a message, the way you knew it was from him is that it was sealed and closed with wax and had the impression of the king's mark in the wax. 
You knew it hadn't been tampered with. You knew it was authentic because it was punishable by death to counterfeit the king's mark. And so what God is saying here is I am authenticating this word. I am letting you know that though you won't see it now, it is true and it is trustworthy and it is preserved for you. And he, he places this word and he has it given to a man that all generations will respect for his faithfulness and integrity and says here, on my authority and yours, hold to this word for future generations. Don't keep it secret, but keep it safe. Preserve its trustworthiness in turbulent times. So we're stopping there. It's a wild and woolly passage. But it's one of my favorites because in hindsight, it is probably the most clear of all of these prophecies. But we've had over 2,000 years to to get to a vision that's 2020 on this passage. Daniel and his contemporaries would never get there. They would never grasp the full import of God's message. And I really think this is where we learn what God's word is for us in this passage. We often want God to Give us all of the answers. We demand that he reveal to us exactly how our future will unfold. But then we see Daniel, who's this titan of the faith, who when he gets what he asks for, when he gets to catch a glimpse of life and history from God's perspective, he realizes that he cannot begin to fully process it. And the experience just proves utterly overwhelming for him. Which reminds me of one of my favorite passages from Corey Ten Boone's book, The Hiding Place. If you don't know her, she was a Dutch watchmaker uh, who they housed uh, Jews during the Holocaust in their home. And her memoir, she ends up in a concentration camp for those acts of courage and blessing. But there's a story from her memoir when she's a a little kid, a little girl, that really rings true here. She had stumbled upon a, a sexually suggestive word in a line of poetry, and she asked her dad on a train to explain what that word meant. And this is what she records. He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question, But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up and lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and I tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's it's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. 
And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my Father's keeping. What lessons are there for us from Corey's example, from Daniel's example? We get to these prophetic parts of Scripture and we want to know all of the answers about history, how it'll unfold, what does everything match up to, and why, why, God, do you communicate in a way that is so oblique and ambiguous and, and full of pictures? Why can't you just tell us and stop speaking in riddles? But it's more than just this prophecy stuff. When I was in my 20s, I was obsessed with seeking answers from the Lord. Who exactly are you inviting me to marry? What major or degree program exactly should I choose? Please be specific. What will my career look like? Uh, When should I start having kids? Should we rent? Should we buy? Should we sell? Should we move? Why is my wife like this? Why am I like this? Why did you give us such a difficult baby? Why does this job feel like I'm beating my head against the wall? Why would you call me here and then let me struggle? Why, 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 why explain yourself? Give me the answers, God, so I can understand and move on with my life. Anyone identify with that? Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this instruction. Some things are revealed. Some things he keeps secret. And I know our God is a God who speaks. He, he thrills to reveal his love and his will to us, to the people that he's devoted himself to, to those who he's adopted and called his own. I know that God, our Father, is a good Father, that he gives good gifts to his children. So if we ask in faith and he does not share with us the answer, I think it's either that the information is not for now or we are not ready for it. It's not that our Father doesn't have the answer, but it's that He's graciously bearing the weight of that future reality for us at the moment. We're going to end with a song of response. As we prepare to sing, I want to invite you to hear again these words from the hiding place. Casper Ten Boone's words to his daughter. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this, 
and to all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in Father's keeping. What did we say at the beginning of this journey? Forget the path. Traveler, there is no path. Quit spending all of your energy searching for answers. Hold to the trail guide. The path will be forged as we walk with him. Trust Jesus. He's our savior, not the knowledge that he might share with us. Even if you get the information you demand, you cannot use that information to save yourself, to solve your problems. Don't miss the message of this book. Christ alone is our future and our hope. Cling to him. Find refuge in the shadow of his wings and be at peace. You guys hear that? Let's end with a prayer of, of surrender and trust. God, we always want to be in control. We want knowledge. We want answers. We want the future laid out before us. But you are God and we are not. And it would be terrifying to move forward into uncertainty, into risk, into challenge, if it were not for the one thing that you are there holding us fast, that your grace is sufficient for whatever we need, that you will give to us all we need for life and godliness. So may the secret things be safe with you. And may we do the next right thing that you've already revealed to us. May we walk in your way. May we trust in your character. May we rest in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.